welcome to the Emotional Work Podcast, where we take a deep dive into the human condition, and my inner geek is incredibly excited today, because um, neuroscience is a much-used term. Some would say it's a bit of a buzzword, um, and I was speaking to somebody at a conference last year who told me that if you want to get on the bill, you need to kind of put neuroscience in the title of your talk, and then that'll get you, that'll get you on, the, on the list of speakers. Um, so I've been wanting to, to speak with somebody who has a, a real in-depth knowledge around neuroscience and, um, and research that we can then get onto the podcast so we can uh, kind of unpick some of the stuff around, um, around neuroscience. And our guest today comes from well outside the realms of our, our normal kind of guest pool. Um, he's a head of, the head of MRI applications at the, and I hope I get this right, Imanova Centre for Imaging Sciences. Um, and as someone who's passionate about both the world of research and practice. I'm so excited to chat to our guest, Matt, today, um, because I think for me there are some misconceptions, some misunderstandings, some, some misrepresentations of what neuroscience is and what it is not. Um, and also I'm curious as to what we can genuinely kind of learn from neuroscience research. So I'd like to welcome our guest to the podcast this week, and that is Matt Wall. Good morning, Matt. Hello, how are you? I'm really well, thank you. What about you? Yeah, not bad, thanks. Good, good. So normally on a podcast like this, I should ask the guests to tell us a bit more about themselves, and but we'll get to do that during the podcast, because one of my previous guests um, I had on the podcast, we talked about the ritualness of conversation and how if you start a conversation off in a different way, then it can take you down a whole new route that you weren't necessarily planning. So now we've got the kind of the, the ritual greeting of hello out of the way, I thought I'd go for a bit of a, a, a different question. Is that okay? Absolutely, fair enough. Wonderful. Okay, so let's go for what has got you excited in the last week? Uh, oh, <clears throat> uh, so um, I think it's one of the things I'm currently working on, actually, one of the things that I'm, I'm helping to set up at the moment. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, a lot of my research at the moment uh, focuses on the effect of drugs on the brain. And uh, we're setting up a, a big new project at the moment, which is going to be looking at uh, the effect of cannabis on the brain. And, okay. Uh, and uh, doing some MRI scans of people, of cannabis users, and also people uh, who uh, have just smoked cannabis. We're actually going to give give people cannabis and put them in the scanner. Um, oh wow! Which is uh, quite going to be interesting. Yeah. How do you get that through ethics? Um, it's actually fine. Um, <clears throat> it's it's well, it's it's difficult, but it's but it is doable. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, you have to have special licenses from the Home Office and things like that in order to, uh, you know, store drugs like that and dispense them mm. and, and use them in, in research. And there's only a few of those licenses around. So, yeah, it's, it's not, not easy, but it is, it is possible, yeah. Wow. Uh, wow, that's really exciting. There's a lot of concern at the moment around kind of high-strength kinds of cannabis Some people call them skunk and things like that. Yeah, uh, okay. And yeah. Uh, we're seeing a lot of... Uh, uh, increase in uh, people reporting problems with cannabis use, like addiction and uh, cannabis-induced psychosis and things like that. There's been a huge rise in, in those kinds of things in the last 10 years or so. Mm. A lot of people think it's related to these very high-strength strains that are around now. So we're going to be comparing um, a couple of different strains of cannabis, a high-strength one and, and a lower-strength one, to see what different effects it has on the brain. Mm. Which is, I, is that... Sorry, go on. No, which is which is you know for these for these questions about about this increase in addiction and psychosis and things that's, that's mm. kind of important to know. Absolutely. So is there going to be a longitudinal aspect to it then? Yeah. So there's there's two aspects. So one one is we're going to put people in the scanner while they're stoned <laughs> and see what okay. their brains brains are doing, uh, and the other one is we're going to f- uh, follow people over a year. Uh, we're going to scan them at the beginning, at the end, and have have a couple of other. Um, 
visits in between and track their track their cannabis usage. And you know, we expect some people will will increase their usage, some people will decrease it, and some people will stay much the same over that mm-hmm. year. And we hope to to try and relate those usage effects to to brain differences. <coughs> And are you going to be relying on self-report for that then? So for the for the users to, and I say users, that's saying true. I didn't mean that has multiple connotations, <laughs> doesn't it? Well, no, they are they are they are drug users. Sure. Um, um, so is that going to be relying on self-report for them to you know to say yeah. how, how much of or you know quantities <coughs> and frequency and so on? Yeah, pretty much. You know, and uh, uh, yeah, there are issues with that, of course, because people lie about these things or don't remember or whatever. But uh, yeah. Uh, there's not much else you can do, to be honest. No, no, absolutely. I, I, was, I was thinking, I was thinking just that in terms of, you know, if if I if I if I had if I had ever been stoned, um, could I remember, <laughs> you know, whether I consumed or the quantity of which I consumed over the over the course of that, um, yeah, sure, of yeah, that, that occasion, yeah, might be a challenge. But yeah, okay. But as you say, there's there's, there's issues with any uh, any sort of research that you do. There's always going to be pitfalls and downsides because you can't yeah. control every single variable. Sure. Um, every bit of the time, can you? Sure. Mm. <coughs> okay. Um, so for me then, what's got me excited in the last week? Um, mm. So there's a there's a bit of a kind of a, a personal and a professional within it, really. So personal is um, I've I've been struggling with some health uh, stuff recently, and I've I'm sorry to hear that. No, it's okay. Thank you. Uh, but I've been told I should um, hear hear more about when I'll be able to get fixed, or when the, when I'll be able to to not be in as much discomfort as I currently am um, by the middle of September. And that's quicker than I was expecting it to be. So oh, that's great! Gonna be, so that's gonna be exciting <laughs> next week. Um, <laughs> uh, and then also, I was um, uh, I was reading some some research this morning about um, behavioural economics. So behavioural economics is a, is a field that interests me greatly in terms of um, some of the <coughs> cognitive biases and heuristics and the shortcuts and mental shortcuts and stuff that we use. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found uh, uh, what, was, it was, what was described as a, a must-read list of behavioural and economics resources. And so I'm going to curate this list of really interesting books and articles and so on together. So that got me really excited until I finished reading the list and realised it was about 40 items long. <laughs> so I was both excited and then kind of like, oh no, overwhelmed <laughs> yes. at the end of it. Um, yeah, that but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It does. That's the thing with reading, it just never ends. There's, there's, exactly. always, there's always more. You can always, always fall down a rabbit hole. And, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I fall down those quite regularly, mm. quite regularly. So, so you mentioned that at the moment your um, your current researcher then is you're looking at cannabis and the effects on the brain. Um, what 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 other areas do you kind of get involved in? What other areas do you research in? So, uh, mostly mostly my research now is on various kinds of drugs. Mm. Um, in the past, I've, I've I've spent a lot of time uh, looking at, at quite kind of low level vision processes in the brain mm. did a few years at UCL uh, doing pain research but since I started working at Imanova which is a which is a, a private company but we're owned by universities so so we do uh, a lot of academic work with universities like the cannabis project that, I'm, that I mentioned mm-hmm. uh, and we also do a lot of work with um, drug companies as well testing out new drugs basically so um, I've, I've, I've been working on recently projects on uh, you know schizophrenia drugs and uh, treatments for or possible possible treatments for Alzheimer's um, mm. some some uh, some work with uh, sex hormones actually 
Okay. So it's quite it's quite varied, to be honest. It's kind of why I like this this job at the moment. Um, yeah. You get to do a lot of different things. So one of the things that, that really interests me about um, the brain is that um, so often people talk about different parts of the brain kind of holding different things, you know, so mm-hmm. um, people might talk about the amygdala being the heart of emotion, you know, as, as I am particularly interested in emotion, but yep. also I think the hippocampus has a lot to do with memory as well, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly. Um, sure. But how, how singular mm-hmm. are those different parts of the brain? Because you thought about pain earlier on, as part of your previous research, and that made me think, well, pain is, kind of for me, is, is, it must be associated in some way with emotion, so there must be... Are there overlaps between what these different parts of the brain do, or do they, you know, do they work in a very singular way? It's it's a pain is a really interesting one to talk about actually because um, pain is is a very difficult one to pin down in the brain. So, okay. um, you know, I spent a lot of time working on say vision, right, <clears throat> and the, the whole kind of back quarter of the brain, uh, the bit right at the back of your head, is all is all. Uh, your visual cortex and and that's the bit that allows you to see if you have an injury to that bit of the brain uh, even if your eyes might be absolutely working perfectly then you go at least partially blind right Mm. Um, so so you're talking about the occipital stuff the the occipital lobe that's right yeah yeah Yeah. Uh, so uh, and the visual cortex kind of works very uh, coherently uh, if you if you shine a light in somebody's eyes, you get a little blip in the visual cortex. Mm. Uh, and if you shine a really bright light in somebody's eyes, you get a, big, a stronger blip in the visual cortex. You know, it kind of, it, it makes sense in that way, right? Yeah, okay. Um, so, once people had worked that out, uh, they then started looking for a similar area that worked the same with pain. Okay. Um but it turns out that pain is, is a bit different. Uh, so there doesn't appear to be, or at least nobody's found it yet, and we have looked a lot, um, there doesn't appear to be an area that works the same way with pain. So um, uh, if you give somebody, a, 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 say, a little electric shock, mm-hmm. um, and you get, then you give somebody a, a whacking great big electric shock, uh, there's no area that responds in that nice, logical, coherent way. Okay. What you have instead is a is a whole network of areas. So there are, there are always areas that respond to a painful stimulus, but there are also areas that respond to other things. Okay. <clears throat> so, for instance, you know, for the visual cortex, the visual cortex is it just does vision. That's all it does. If you yeah. if you if you uh, play a sound to somebody, the visual cortex doesn't respond, but the auditory cortex does, and vice versa, right? <clears throat> It's just specialised for that. For pain, uh, there are this whole network of areas, but they also light up when you're doing other things as well. So there's no there's no pain specific region, or there appears there appears not to be, uh, and that's been a bit of a puzzle for a long time. Uh, you know, ideally, if we could find a pain a pain region that was responding uh, in that way, and uh, for instance, people that have a lot of you know, problems with chronic pain. Um, mm-hmm. conditions where they're, they're in pain all the time and there doesn't appear to be a, 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 an easily classifiable problem, if you like, an easily uh, a, a good diagnosis, you know? Yeah, yeah. Some people just have just have 
constant pain, um, which is which is you know very unfortunate. If we could find the right brain area to kind of and, and try and manipulate it and turn that off, that would be a wonderful thing. But uh, unfortunately, pain seems to be a bit more complicated than things like vision or, or uh, sound and other things. Mm. And uh, uh, mm. so, does it? Are we talking about individual differences there? So, does it differ differ by individual? So, you know, so I don't know. Um, this is where I'm testing my own knowledge of, of, the, of the brain now. So, mm. it might be that, say, I don't know the. Uh, the neocortex and the hypothalamus, because the hypothalamus is involved with the HPA axis, which is to do with kind of regulating um, chemical imbalances, if I yep. remember that correctly. Exactly. Um, so, so do they um, like do they always fire, but to different degrees, or or would different bits fire or not fire depending on the individual that you're scanning? It, it's probably it's probably not so much individual differences. So you still you still see the same network of areas in um, in different people. Um, there may be some individual differences in in people that 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 have these chronic pain problems compared to to controls. Mm-hmm. Or healthy, you know, healthy people. Um, but it, it seems to be that pain is represented in a more complex way in the brain as a as some kind of emergent property of the activity of these network of areas. Um, that makes it very difficult to pin down. So your original your original question was, uh, you know, about areas like the amygdala yeah. and, and the hippocampus. Um, is it? Is it right to say that the amygdala is the fear area and, and the hippocampus is the memory area? Mm-hmm. And, and it's right to an extent, but w- one thing I've learned when you know when talking about the brain and trying to think about the brain is that if you have a nice simple story like that, it's almost always wrong. You know, <laughs> or, uh, you know, it, the brain is always always 10 times more complicated than you can possibly think it is yeah mm-hmm. so the amygdala <coughs> the amygdala does respond to uh, uh, fear related stimuli absolutely but it also responds to a lot of other things and the hippocampus is definitely involved in memory but it's also involved in you know spatial navigation and a lot of other functions mm-hmm. um, and probably a load of other functions that we haven't figured out yet so it's it's it, it's you know there's always this uh, um, tendency to try and try and uh, create these nice simple explanations and you know me as a scientist I like nice simple explanations, explanations as well um, that make my life so much easier believe me um, but there's a there's a thing that um, you know Terry Pratchett, the guy who did yeah. the, the Discworld books? So he wrote a, a couple of books with a guy called Jack Cohen about the science of the Discworld, uh, which, are, which are pretty good. Uh, and, they're, they're, and they're basically kind of popular science books, but kind of using some of his Discworld uh, fantasy silliness to, to um, uh, hook, hook, hook the science ideas on, if you like. Yeah. But, but he had this, uh, they had, in these books, they came up with this thing they called Lies to Children, um, which is uh, I'm not, I'm not that. no. Well, it's it's it's, um, it's basically when you when you try and explain something complicated, and you try and reduce it down and reduce it down and reduce it down, yeah. um, 
eventually it becomes so simplified that it just becomes wrong, you know? Yeah, okay. Um, you know, think about uh, the, 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 the model of an atom. You know, you have a nucleus and the electrons spinning around it. That's that's our simple model of, of how it works, but that's not correct. You know, that's okay. that, that, that's a very poor approximation of the, the actual um, uh, the actual thing. And uh, so so you know they, they were imagining explaining something to a child, and um, and basically you have to you have to end up lying. You have to you have yeah. to t- say wrong things in order to make it understandable, basically. Yeah, no, uh, I, I can, that I makes can sense. Go, yeah, absolutely. So yep. this week um, we were in the car listening to the radio. Um, I listen to Radio 1 because I like to think I'm younger than I actually am. Uh-huh. Um, but we were listening to the news and there, it was talk of the terror attacks in Spain. Mm. So my son, who's four, and my middle child, who's seven, mm. um, were both like, what's a terror attack? Oh, oh <laughs> God, where do, where do we go with this then? Um, and I remember the, we went through a number of iterations of response and the one that, that he was he was willing to accept was one where I was like, well, it's not really like that, though, is it? Which I think was, there are some people in the world that want to do some nasty stuff, um, and they believe things that, that are wrong to, that, that seem wrong to us, um, but they're not willing to listen, so instead they try and get us to change our minds by doing nasty things. Yeah, so I ended up just kind of thinking, is that is that is that really right? Is that accurate? Because it, it's not as simple as that, but is it simple enough for a, for a four-year-old to accept. Does that make sense? I think that sounds pretty good. Yeah, my son's only two, so I haven't encountered that one yet, but uh, I'll remember it for when it, when it comes up. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I often think with, um, you know, to, uh, there's, there's some research that's done into... Um, oh, that's not true. That's a, that's a very bland phrase for what I want to say. Let me rephrase that. Um, so I, I often hear people talk about, say, serotonin and, and dopamine yeah. as, as chemicals to do with happiness, mm-hmm. um, and how you know if we if we do this in the workplace, then people will feel you know will have higher levels of well or you know of actually I suppose I should ask you if you know how to extrapolate between the difference between serotonin and dopamine. But we'll come back to that in a minute. Okay. But like, oh, if, if we do this in the workplace, people will have more. You know, so there was a there was I, I should have had an example, but I didn't. I didn't prepare all the things I was going to say. So, you know, a piece of research that says when people were asked to talk about freedom, their, their, you know, their thoughts on freedom in the workplace whilst in an fMRI scanner, there was increased dopamine. Mm-hmm. Um, or, but they actually wouldn't test dopamine in a scanner. No. Um, yeah, but, but anyway, but yeah. you know what I mean? So, the, but the idea of, oh, if we just, you know, if we do this, that will create more of that chemical, which means people will be happier. It, for me, it's, it's just not that simple. No, it's really not, I'm afraid. Um, and this this comes this that actually that example actually points to a a, a kind of conceptual issue that that I see a lot uh, in this kind of thing, and it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So it's kind of shoehorning neuroscience neurosciencey things in where where they don't necessarily really belong or they're not they're not that useful so mm. okay if you do this in the workplace then people will be happier isn't that isn't that enough do you do you need to know the mechanism in their brain by which they'll become happier mm-hmm. um <clears throat> is it useful to know that um it's a it's a 
it's a thing that um, kind of the the evolutionary guys like to call um, proximate and ultimate explanations. So explanations okay. explanations that are, that are kind of close to what you're studying and explanations that are very far from what you're studying. So um, if you think about, you know, well, why does it, why does a lion chase a zebra? Like okay. the proximate explanation would be because he's hungry, you know, um, and that's a that's a perfectly good explanation, um, yeah. you know, uh, and the ultimate explanation would be that millions of years ago the lion's ancestors developed traits that led them to eventually become lions and hunt wildebeest or zebras, whatever it was. Yeah, um, zebras. Yeah, yeah sorry, <laughs> <laughs> um, and. Both of those explanations work. They're both good explanations of, of why the lion chases the zebra. Um, and they're both interesting. They're both good to know. But, but the, the one which is most useful to you depends on the, on the problem that you're addressing at the time, I guess, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if, you're, if, you're, if you want to increase happiness in the workplace... Um, do things that make people happy Uh, and the ultimate explanation of of why they're happy and and what's happening in their brain uh, it's interesting sure I mean that's what I do I I, this is what I research I think it's very interesting Um, but is it that useful I'm not sure I think I think what you care about. I remember reading something by a guy called David Rock, who you may have come across. He, no, he, run, he runs this uh, thing called the Neuro Leadership Institute. Okay. Um, so they have a big conference every year, and, and uh, uh, he's very he's, a, he's one of the one of the guys who's been kind of pushing neuroscience explanations for um, in the workplace and things like that. Um, yeah. And uh, I remember reading one of these things, and, and uh, uh, he said, uh, brains are social. Uh, and I thought at the time, well, no, people are social, you know. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. That's true. Being sure. human is social. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, um, it's, it sounds an odd thing for me to say because I'm, I'm a neuroscientist, and that's what I, um, that's what I do, but... Um, I don't think invoking neuroscience explanations is, is necessarily always useful, to be honest. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm with you. You know, because, so part and partly because, um, so so partly because I'm biased because um, I guess because of my personal preferences and, and, and academic background, but. Um, what what makes an individual happy is often very different. You know, there's there's very few universal things that will make everybody happy. Yeah. You know, so there's the <clears throat> if I look at some emotion, you know, some psychology emotion research, yeah. then it's purported that the universal trigger for happiness is pleasure. And that pleasure can come through any one of the five senses. Mm-hmm. Um, um, it can be, but it also, you know, and it also can be imagined, mm-hmm. and it can be relived. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, you can remember something that's given you pleasure in the past, or you could imagine something that would, you know, would give you pleasure, and you know, or you can experience something that would give you pleasure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, still to me, the smell of Jean-Paul Gaultier perfume takes me back to my first girlfriend. <laughs> and that, you know, that that does a, a combination of things. You sure. know, it both allows me to relive and. 
um, and then you know, I get the, the, you know, the pleasure from the smell. But mm-hmm. um, just because that will make me happy doesn't necessarily mean it will make other people happy. Um, so, I, yeah, I just, I don't, I don't buy, I don't buy it. And that, that actually speaks to another issue with this kind of thing. Uh, I feel like I'm being very negative, but uh, bear with me for a little while longer. No, no, sorry, no, it's fine. I don't think you are. So okay, you good. Keep going. <laughs> that that, that in, uh, example about individual differences in what makes people happy, I mean, that goes back to another issue with, with trying to apply neuroscience research. Um, because neuroscience research is always done on groups, groups of people, and you get mm. you get an average result across this group because because people vary so much. You know, if you if you want to if you want to know something very very simple like are men taller than women, right? Yeah. You don't go and measure just one man and one woman because you might end up with a particularly tall woman and a particularly short man, and then you reach the wrong conclusion, right? Mm-hmm. You go out and measure 100 men and 100 women, uh, and then you'd get something approximating to the right answer, yeah? Yeah. Um, you know, and this is this is true, I'm sure you, you know, this is true in, in almost all science. You don't just make one measurement um, yeah. because, you're, you know, your ruler might have slipped when you were doing that measurement or something, you know? Um, yeah all kinds of things might happen or you just might have a particularly weird subject. Uh, So, you know, when when we do experiments and and try and look at, you know, say amygdala function to to fearful stimuli and things like that, we might scan a group of, you know, 20, 30 people uh, and a couple of them will just show usually really weird looking results you know maybe they mm. maybe they fell asleep in the scanner or something like that um maybe they just have weird weird amygdala you know for, yeah. for whatever reason maybe they were distracted i don't know um uh, so you know we always make these uh make these claims or make these inferences about the average uh, of a group and what that means is when you when you uh want to start uh, talking about individuals, it becomes very difficult because, um, like you said, any particular individual uh, is going to have different things that make them happy. Uh, mm. And uh, if you take a big enough group, you might find some common things that, that make most of that group happy. But you can't necessarily apply those findings to a particular individual. You're always talking about um, at a group level. And, and I think in, in the workplace, you know, that's a, that's a perennial issue, whether you're talking about happiness or whatever. You know, there's always an argument for you can never make, you know, you can't, whatever you do, someone's always going to be unhappy. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, 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 I, and I get that. Um, but I guess I, I think I'm then going back to your point earlier on, is to, well, we don't need to go to neuroscience research to find that out. You know, we can just ask people. You know, we don't need to go and... Uh, and and find some way of measuring um, someone's chemical, you know, chemical responses at a particular point in time. Yeah. Um, to find that out, we can just ask them. Mm. You know, and yes, they might lie, or yes, they might, you know, change their mind. But you know, there's, there's there's only so much that, that we can do before we, um, you know, before we lose the the validity of what it is that we're trying to do in the first place. Yeah. 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 So, so things like chemical um, 
stuff. So we talk about so some of the chemicals that often get kind of bounded around <coughs> are cortisol, um, glucose or glucose. Glucose. Oh, there's another glucose one. I'll come back to in a minute. Um, serotonin and um, I've forgotten already. And I've only just dopamine. Said. Dopamine. Dopamine. Yeah. Thank you. So, how, how would those sort of things be tested for? And is the testing of those things does that still sort of sit within the within the neuroscience research? I suppose maybe I need to take us back. Actually, tell. Can I take us back a step before I ask that question? Okay. What What is neuroscience, or what is neuroscience research? What does it kind of involve? Or does it in, what does it encapsulate? Uh, so, I mean, it's a very it's a very broad area of research. So, I mean, neuroscience really goes from uh, people that, that do stuff in little glass dishes with microscopes and individual cells, individual, okay. individual brain cells or sometimes, you know, peripheral nerve cells. That's still neuroscience. Um, and figuring out how, you know, it works at a, at a molecular level or a cellular level like that. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> And then there's a whole bunch of people in the middle who do work with animals, um, uh, doing various things, um, trying to usually trying to um, change the change the animal's brain in some way through drugs or maybe through electrical stimulation mm. uh, or a number of other methods, um, and looking at the effects on the brain of, of the animal, uh, and then up to kind of the kind of work that I do, which is on people, where we don't, you know, uh, often damage people's brains too much, and we try not to. Um, yeah. We do sometimes give them, give them drugs, but... Um, yeah. uh, and, uh, and using kind of technologies like MRI and uh, uh, positron emission tomography as well um, to look at, you know... Working brains, if you like, brains in in vivo, in the organism. Um, So, I mean, that's and there's a whole lot of other things as well. It's a very, it's a very broad uh, area of research. So, what I do tends to be called kind of cognitive neuroscience. So, meaning uh, neuroscience of cognition. So, more more kind of human level kind of brain processes, rather than looking at the real low level uh, cellular stuff. Okay. Uh, so, um, positron emission tomography, PET scanning, um, that I just mentioned, is 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 a te- yeah. is a technique for looking at uh, brain chemistry. So, actually, where I work, we have we have uh, PET scanners and MRI scanners, um, and the two techniques complement each other. So, um, MRI is, uh, which is my speciality, is um, yeah. it's nice because it's it uses huge magnets to um, to get images of the inside of the body and, and the brain mm-hmm. uh, and look at brain activity. And that's uh, that's basically harmless. So you can go in an MRI scanner as many times as you like. I've been in there hundreds of times. Um, mm-hmm. And it's not a problem. Uh, it doesn't seem to have any bad effects at all. The other technology that we have here, PET, is... Um, quite different and it involves uh, being injected with a radioactive tracer substance and then you basically, okay. basically look where that radioactivity goes uh, in the body and, or in the brain um, so that's a, that's a bit of a different proposition you know you don't want to do more than one or two PET scans a year you don't want to be exposed to uh, more than yeah. one kind of level of radiation and it's a much more kind of medical 
experience generally. Um, you need to have <coughs> doctors hanging around and things like that. Um, but what PET does give you is really great information about the brain chemistry that you can't get with, with MRI. So uh, yeah, okay. you, can, you can inject a, uh, a radioactive substance that, say, specifically binds to dopamine receptors, Mm -hmm. um, and then you can get a nice map of the brain which shows you where all the dopamine receptors are and the activity at those receptors. Uh, or you can do the same with serotonin or a number of other different uh, brain chemicals. Uh, so uh, the way that we work it is we get we get you know some information normally when we're, when we're testing out a new drug or something like that for, for a drug mm -hmm. company we would we would say okay we think this drug hits say dopamine receptors we'll do a, a dopamine PET scan that confirms that the, the drug is actually uh, first of all confirms that the drug is getting into the brain because the, the membrane that protects the brain from the rest of the body is, is only kind of semi-permeable only some things go through okay. um, so first of all it, it confirms that it gets into the brain second it confirms that it hits the, the right receptors um, that we think it does uh, and then we, we might put people in an MRI scanner and do some uh, dopamine-related uh, task in the MRI scanner, um, some task that's uh, related to rewarding stimuli. Mm -hmm. So we might get them to play a game where they, where they can win money. Um, yeah, okay. uh, and then we see that maybe the dopaminergic areas in the brain are, are responding when they're, when they're doing that kind of thing. Um, Maybe they're responding a bit more when they have this new drug compared to a placebo. Uh, mm -hmm. And we can show that there's some kind of uh, functional response as well. So that the drug is, is getting into the brain, it's hitting the receptors, and it's actually doing something when it's there as well, related mm -hmm. to how they're feeling or, or their psychological functions, if you like. Uh, so your question was about the, the neurochemistry. So we, we can, with, with those two techniques, and these are the kind of studies that we like to do, kind of mm. pulling it all together. With those two techniques, we can say something quite powerful about um, the brain uh, neurotransmitters, things like dopamine and serotonin, and how those kind of translate into um, uh, behavior, if you like. Yeah, okay. And, and, and so one of the reasons that I'm interested in, in getting into all, of, into all of this stuff is because um, that's a nice general phrase, isn't it? All of this stuff. Mm -hmm. So the reason I'm, I'm asking and really dig, trying to dig into some of the what the how do you, you know, how do you measure how do you test these things is because um, one of the things that, that I guess it's not I wouldn't say it's sweeping the the. You know, the, the field that I work in, you know, so I work in mainly in people-related fields, so leadership or human resources or learning and development type stuff. And there's a, a big sort of uh, swell for people to be more evidence-based in their approach. Yeah. So rather than just going with, you know, the standard, you know, what's sexy or what's current or what's shiny, yeah. you actually go and dig in some of the evidence behind it. Yeah. One of the challenges, I think, is that people don't know what they're looking for. Yeah. You know, so when they go and set, partly, you know, partly it's because a lot of the academic research is paywalled, you know, so unless yeah. you have Shivna or, or Athens, you can't get to it. Yeah. But, you know, also just to, yeah, for, for, for people to, or listeners to know what, you know, what sorts of things should they be looking for? Because as you just said, neuroscience is a really big thing, so it can include 
MRI and P, PET, PET that you just talked about as well. Yeah. And, and, and as far as I'm aware, there's also others. You've got EEG yeah. as well. There's, there's lots of different ways of testing yeah. um, what's going on in the brain. And so in, and knowing what they all do, I think, can be really helpful because then it allows you to, to take that, you know, quite a, a critical approach to what you're reading to say, well, actually, is there some, is there validity in, in this and is there is there validity in linking this research to this context or not? Yeah, and it, yeah, yeah. But and it's so it's so uh, opaque a lot of it as well. So you know, it took me when I first started working with with uh, functional MRI. You know, it took me a couple of years to, to to kind of get into the field and and start reading stuff and really understanding it. Um, uh, you know, if you if you, ju- if you just look at academic papers, um, and you don't have that kind of background, um, I think it's incredibly difficult. So, I mean, even even now, if I if I try and read, you know, PET papers or, or EEG papers, areas that mm. things that are a little bit out of my specialty, I, I struggle. You know, I have to go and ask the, the PET guys to explain it to me. Um, so, I can imagine that that. Somebody coming in with a, with a more HR leadership background and just looking at the uh, the real primary academic literature might might really struggle. And um, I, I I think that might not be that useful to be honest. I mean, have you, has, have you found that? Is it, a, a lot of jargon and technical language, and which is necessary. Um, you know, if you're talking to other, you know, you, you write these things with the intention of talking to other people who, who work in the same area, really. Um, so, yeah, so, so yeah, I, I find it, I remember when one of the modules I did when I was studying was on memory, um, and in particular them looking at the stress response in memory. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and I'm trying to get a memory researcher um, on the podcast because, again, I think it's a, it's a it's a massive field that is misrepresented and misunderstood in the learnings you know in the learning yeah, sphere. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go off on a site rant and then I'll come back. Yeah. So you know the idea that if you make learning memorable, um, then so if you make content memorable, then people are more likely to remember it and therefore they will learn it. And therefore they will apply it. Yeah. I'm like, well, that's that's not actually what memory research does. What memory research does is it looks at, um, you know, it will look at the capacity of, of working memory, it will look at encoding, it will look at retrieval, mm-hmm. it won't look at application. You know, memory yeah. research that, that's done won't go, they'll, they'll test, you know, can, if, if they, if, if I ask them to remember these things and I put them through this stressful simulation yeah. and then I ask them to recall those things, you know, what what impact does that have on recall? That, you know, all you're testing there is recall, you're not testing application, you're not testing you know, sense making. You're just saying I asked them to remember these things. I put them through. You know, so I, I remember we read, read one study, which was of um, firefighters going into um, being you know, going into a, um, the classic kind of aircraft submergence um, mm. uh, machine where you know you say, remember this, go in, get dunked in water, get turned upside down, get disorientated. Mm. Um, be scared and then come out the other side and try and recall this list of things. And I was mm-hmm. like, well, that's no, that's of no use to learning. You know, that, yeah, that, that sure. just tests, you know, how can I, how well can I recall information after going through stress? It doesn't, um, it doesn't test learning per se. Sure. Sorry. Sure. Off of soapbox stepping. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 
But I guess that, that also applies to to. Um, oh no, I want to ask that question. I'll come back to that in a minute. So, um, you mentioned in, in when you were talking just now, you mentioned MRI and fMRI. Now, from from my interpretation, they're two slightly different things. Is that right? Uh, that's right. Yeah. Okay, so, so can you tell me the difference? Uh, so, well, an, an MRI, MRI is, a, is a kind of family of techniques, really. Uh, oh, okay. So um, there's a lot of... An MRI scan is quite a flexible tool, and there's a lot of different um, things that you can do with it. Uh, oh, okay. So um, you can use it to, do, to just get very, very nice, uh, high-quality images of the, of the structure of the inside of the body, mm-hmm. you know, whether that's the brain or the, the lungs or whatever um, yeah. and that's very useful in medical situations diagnosing you know you can see tumors and, and see other problems and, and things like that um, you can use it uh, as a as a spectroscope so you can do a little bit of limited um, looking at different metabolites things like things like uh, glucose and creatine and things like that mm-hmm. um, you can you can and you can use it uh, in functional MRI, which is looking at a brain function. So, um, a functional MRI is kind of a, a subset of MRI in general, if you like. Okay, uh, it's one of the techniques that, that people use MRI scanners for, and there are lots and lots of different different ways of using them. And an fMRI that looks at blood flow in well. So I, I I know of it in terms of monitoring blood flow in the brain. Is that right? So yeah, when right. when certain you know when like, I guess when the the example you used earlier, you shine a light in someone's eye and the occipital lobe will will light up. One of my phrase. Yeah. That lighting up is is monitoring the, the blood flow to that particular part of the brain. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So when when a brain region becomes more active, uh, when the cells start firing, they need more oxygen and glucose. Okay. Uh, so. Um, there's a there's a response in the brain where the you know the oxygen and glucose is supplied by the by the blood supply which goes all through the brain. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a kind of local response in that particular area where the blood vessels dilate and, and dump more oxygen and glucose there, and that's that's what we can see. So as as that happens, the magnetic properties of that area change a little bit. Uh, okay. And that's that's the signal that we pick up with the MRI scanner. Okay. And it's the same scanner. It's not a different scanner. You're just scanning, like you said, it's quite an MRI is quite flexible. Yes, exactly the same scanner. So normally, when we do uh, when we do experiments, we we might have several different kinds of scans. So we might start off by doing just a a simple anatomical scan, just to get a good image of the head of whoever we're scanning, Mm -hmm. Um, and then do some functional scans, and then and then maybe a couple of other different scans at the end or something like that. So you can do it all all at the same time on the same patient. Okay. Okay. Um, and I, uh, so other things that I've noted down as we've been going, because I've chucked some jargon in. So earlier on I mentioned EEG. Mm-hmm. I didn't really explain what EEG was. And I could give them what I think an EEG, but I, I wonder if you might be a better place to give a, a more accurate description of what sure. of what an EEG is. So EEG is kind of, is kind of interesting currently, actually, because um, it, it fell out of favour a lot. Um, so EEG was the probably the first like technical uh, brain recording um, technique that was developed. So kind of early 20th century, people realised that the brain gives off electrical signals. So mm. EEG stands for electroencephalography. 
um, uh, which, which means electric in-head writing. <laughs> um, Thank you for the translation yeah. as well. Because the early EGs used used basically pens on paper with you know the, the wiggly lines, you, you know that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So like uh, for a polygraph. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, so yeah, there was a lot lot of work done on EEG in, in the in the 20th century, and then uh, it kind of fell out of favour a bit. Um, a lot of important work done in kind of identifying different stages of sleep and things like that. You know, in REM sleep, you get big uh, uh, EEG signals and things like that. Um, but then other techniques came along, <coughs> and EEG kind of uh, reduced its importance, if you like. But then, actually, the last 10, 15 years, there's been a bit of a uh, kind of resurgence of interest in it. So in the last 10 years or so, people have come up with these... Um, very light, uh, very um, quite simple uh, EEG headsets, kind of plastic things okay. that you just stick on your head with these dry contact electrodes. So previously you had to, um, to get really good EEG data, you had to use this conductive gel on the electrodes and kind of stick, yeah, yeah, stick so the rest of the people's head. Yeah, it's not a skull cap that doesn't really do it, just this, yeah. you know, a, a whole head. Yeah, a whole head cap filled with basically electrodes and, and with this kind of jelly stuff and it's incredibly messy and you know to get really good EEG data you basically have to shave shave somebody's head and uh, people don't tend to like that um, <laughs> and like, you get all this jelly in your hair and it takes ages to put the electrodes on and stuff but and it's a yeah. big mess but anyway uh, about 10 years ago people came up with these dry contact electrodes um, and these very lightweight wireless EEG headsets and um, people started using them for all kinds of things. So um, there's been a big kind of uh, uh, push in the kind of neuromarketing world um, using these things, for, you know, on people while they're, you know, walking around supermarkets and making product choices and things like that. Mm. Um, and they don't, they don't give you brilliant quality data. And I'm, I'm a, a, bit, a bit suspect about, about a lot of that kind of research. I mean, EEG is a is a tricky technique anyway. So EEG gives you really good uh, information about the timing of events that you're measuring, but it doesn't yeah. doesn't give you good information about uh, where the events are happening, because because you're, you're you're listening through the for these very very tiny tiny electrical signals of the brain, you're listening through the skull and you know all the muscles and all the other stuff that's in between um, yeah. your brain and the outside air. Uh, it's, it's kind of like, you know, if you live in a block of flats and you can hear somebody kind of in the next flat or the ne even the flat beyond that having an argument and you can't quite make out what they're saying. You don't know where it's coming from or there's a pipe yeah. knocking in the walls or something like that. You know, uh, you, you, can, you can hear something, but you don't know what it is or exactly where it's coming from, basically. Yeah. 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 Uh, so... Uh, EEG is an interesting technique, and, and these these lightweight uh, headsets are getting are getting better, um, and they might be you know uh, quite good at some point. Um, and they and they're interesting in that you can you can start doing things with them out in the world, you know, um, yeah. which is which is always nice, rather than lying in a little metal coffin, which is what uh, MRI scanners are like, which is not very re you know, related to the real world. 
Yeah, and, and I think that's something that I, I alluded to earlier, but, we, we, but I, didn't, I think I stepped back from saying in terms of one of the big challenges that, that I have with, um, with any kind of... Well, so I say with neuroscience research in particular, because it, is, it really isn't very portable at all. Yeah. You know, so yeah, you're right, you know, possible EEGs exist... Um, so I don't know if the polygraph was fit within neuroscience as a field, but anyway, because yeah. it's, it's measuring autonomic nervous system yeah, changes. Well, so. yeah, more or less, yeah. So, yeah, so it might do. Um, but the majority of, of, of scanners that you would use, again, you know, they, they're not portable out into the field, no. so you're not. Um, and even then, you know, you can't do any. Um, you, uh, you, yeah, because it'd be difficult. You know, somebody wouldn't want to wear an EEG all day. You know, to be monitored, you know, for, for their for their interactions all day. No, um, probably not. So therefore, the the validity of or the not validity, the generalizability of of neuroscience research beyond the lab, I think, is tough. Oh yeah, definitely. And it's, you know, and it's the same with deception research. You know, um, where people set up mock theft experiments or. Mm. Um, you know, especially, and often they're using undergraduate students and so on and so on. Yeah. Okay, so we, we, we've, we've established what the, I don't know, let's say the accuracy of deception detection is for undergraduate students in a lab, mm. but, that, but that doesn't tell us the whole story. Oh, you know, no. That's therefore not generalisable across the whole... De- deception um, research whole is, is really tough because you just, it's so hard to kind of engineer a situation where people are genuinely lying yeah yeah and you know even if you manage to come up with some some way of of getting people to lie to you uh in a in a lab-based situation it's just not going to be the same as uh you know somebody who's who's picked up by the police and and is lying about where they were on a particular Mm. night you know the, the motivation (laughs) is just is just so different it's just it's um yeah Deception research yeah. is, is incredibly tough. And so I, I was going to, um, I've kind of taken a start to take stand roads. I'll finish that off. So one of the mm-hmm. things that I know is I know is popular in the states is is the use of what's called brain fingerprinting, mm-hmm. which is using an EEG. Mm-hmm. And actually, they, they have tipped it into. There has been some studies done it using an MRI as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but w- the the format is um, well, what what it tries to do is find out if somebody is hiding knowledge. So the, the underlying hypothesis is that if you are presented with a stimulus that you are familiar with, mm. so if you're using an EG, for example, the orienting response, which was also known as the P300 wave, yeah. um, will, will fire if you see something that you are familiar with versus items that you're not familiar with. Yeah. So what it tries to do is, um, let's say in a, in a forensic setting, yeah. Let, let's say there was a, a weapon involved in, a, in an assault or a, or, or a murder, yeah. um, the, they will show images of lots of different types of weapons, yeah. and then interspersed in there will be a picture of the actual weapon, yeah. and the EEG will therefore pick up when the um, you know pick up the orienting response with a, with something that they recognise versus something that they don't recognise. Yeah. That sense. yeah. Um, uh, yeah. That's pretty controversial. Um, so it's almost exactly the same kind of conceptual technique as, as the polygraph, right? That was, that's, Absolutely. That's based on yeah. it's based on people, you know, having a response to something that they that they they feel guilty about or, or whatever. Um, yeah, yeah I, I I struggle to believe that that 
that uh, that's very reliable to be honest. I mean, the polygraph is not as reliable as people think either. Um, no, it's not. By a long <laughs> shot. Um, well, so so it's reliable at detecting changes in your autonomic nervous system. Oh, it's sure. Good at that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But is it good at detecting lies? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah, and that, I think that's why we've we've never really used it in in the UK. You know, it's always been yeah. an American thing. It's always been too uh, regarded as too unreliable. Um, yeah. And I I think the, the same about the more brain based uh, techniques as well. I think again, yeah. it's like uh, it's extrapolating from a from a group to an individual. So you might you might do an experiment where, and I'm sure people have done this. You know, where you um, do exactly what you describe, you know, show people a, a list of things, some of which are familiar and some of which are not, and you might see a difference in the, the EEG signal on the familiar things uh, in that group as a whole. Um, but then applying that to an individual is is really problematic because some of the individuals in that group will be doing something completely different, probably. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and again, the, the, it's, it's back to the motivation, you know. So, <clears throat> if you if you have a group of, where, you know, even if you said you went for a big sample size, mm. you had a you had a hundred um, undergraduate students, and you let's say you try to put some motivation in play, which was um, if you tr you know if you don't um, if you trick the EEG, so if you don't show the orienting response, then you'll get a reward, mm. or um, if you try to and you fail, then we'll give you some punishment. Well, that's a you know it's unlikely to get through ethics if there's going to be some form of punishment. Yes, there might be a reward, but it's only ever going to be minimal. Yeah. Whereas if you're talking about you know somebody saying you know orienting whether they've committed a, a crime or whether they have um, you know committed some some horrible deed, the, the motivation to um, to hide it is so much stronger. Yeah. And therefore, um, you know other you know, countermeasures can be deployed. To do it. Yeah, exactly. There, there's some quite well-known countermeasures to for the for the polygraph, and I think the same would apply for the EEG as well. Yeah, yeah, and, and just, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, yeah. I, I suppose it, where I was going with that is, is just the generalizability. Mm. You know, so how, how how appropriate is it to to generalize neuroscience research across into you know, either, either work life or, you know, or individual life. Um, and I guess I'd be, I know that's a really big, broad question, Matt, so there might be unf it might be an unfair question for me to ask, but, but it's a question I want to ask nonetheless, if I may. Yeah, sure. No, I think it's, it's, a, it's a really important question. So, you know, as a, as, a, as a neuroscientist, it would be, you know, really nice if, if something that we did actually made people's lives better, you know. <laughs> that, would be, yeah. that would be great. So, you know, there are, there are some uh, things that, that translate. So, I mean, you know, uh, tends to be more, more clinical-oriented things. So, you know, I, I worked on projects that are testing out new drugs for schizophrenia and Alzheimer's and things like that, and that's a, mm -hmm. a, a clear application. But more everyday things, it gets more difficult, I think. And, and there's so much interest around at the moment in doing this, um, like you say, at the beginning, you're, you're, um, the guy you met at the conference said, mm. you know, uh, you have to have neuroscience to get on the bill. You know, pe yeah. people are really interested in it, and not just in the business world, but in the teaching world as well. There's a, a hell of a lot of interest in it. 
and um, and I, unfortunately, I think that there's just not too much kind of substance behind it at the moment. Um, it's 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 very difficult, and, and a lot a lot of it is conceptual problems. So you know, going from a, a, a group result to to an individual result mm-hmm. um, is one big one. Uh, another one, another big problem is that a lot of I'd say, probably say most scientists just aren't that interested in, in getting involved in that kind of uh, translational work, if you like. They, you know, they, yeah. have their, they have their little problems that they want to work on and, and that they're interested in, and, and that's it, really. Um, yeah, I think that's, you know, I was having a discussion with a, I think there's a guy on Twitter called Rob Briner, uh-huh. Um <clears throat> used to be at the University of Bath, he's now at one of the London universities. Mm. Um, and, and he and I were discussing that, you know, an acad- uh, often academics will, yeah, let's yeah, be unfair and do a great generalisation, often academics are doing, are doing research for academic purposes yeah, as absolutely. opposed to applied purposes, you know, whether that be a, a personal interest or a, um, you know, or a question they want to answer yeah. or to be published in a, in a AAA rated journal or whatever that might be. Yeah. Um, but they're doing it for academic reasons you know, rather than applied reasons. So as much as the world might want to take research and apply it in the real world, often that's not the intent behind the research that was done in the first place. No, and and there's value in doing basic research. Like you, you never know what it's going to lead to some, you know, 10, 20 years down the line, you know, working out all the tiny little... Uh, features of how you know how the visual cortex works. You know, it might not seem like there's any particular applications of it, but who knows? In the future, we might be teaching you know machines to, to see like we do and things like that, and it might be useful. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there is value in basic research. Um, uh, it's not always obvious at the time what the value might be, um, but you know, history is taught us that, 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 that basic research leads to applied things eventually sometimes uh, yeah. and you never know which basic research is going to be useful um, but the people that do the basic research don't necessarily have their kind of their eyes on that bigger picture if you like um, and yeah. it's difficult to get them to engage with the with the wider world which is uh, I think it's a shame because there's there's, there's this appetite out there you know people yeah, people find it I mean, I find it, this whole thing interesting because that's that's what I do. But I think generally people find the brain and neuroscience just generally interesting. They want to hear about it, um, which is nice. Um, and you know, if you're somebody like you who's obviously you know read read quite a lot around this area, um, you know that's that's an interesting, nice thing to do, um, regardless of whether it you know ends up changing your life or your or your business, <laughs> business practices or or whatever yeah. um it'd be nice if it could do that as well but uh i i don't think we're there yet um uh, and uh, a lot of it's kind of conceptual issues about about um you know going from groups to individuals and, and the other things that we mentioned um yeah. and a lot of it's uh I think mostly, honestly, the fault lies with the scientists because there's there's this appetite out there, and, and a lot of the scientists are just not really 
engaging with it, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I honestly don't, you know, I, to people uh, people talk about uh, this a lot, and uh, people ask ask me quite a lot. So I, I, I run a blog, and, and I've written a couple of articles mm-hmm. online about this kind of thing. Uh, and so people often people often get in touch and, and ask me, well, what's what's some good what's some good stuff? Tell me that because I, I, I'm often quite critical online about about these things. Uh, mm. You know, we want to implement neuroscience in our organisation. You know, or neuroscience derived principles. Tell me, tell me the tell me what I need to read. And and I I always struggle because. Um, I, I don't know what to suggest for them to read. You know, there, there's there's honestly not much really useful applications out there, um, and, I, and I wish there were. You know, <laughs> yeah. uh, that would be that would be great if if some aspect of my work could be could be applied and and uh, and was useful. Uh, but at the moment, it's it's really difficult to to recommend anything. And if, it, if, if you're okay to, Matt, would, would you mind sending me links to your to, the, to your blog and all those articles so I can put them in the show notes so if people want to go and find out more? Then sure, got, yeah, yeah. They've got, some, they've got somewhere to go. Absolutely, that's okay. yeah. Um, and you've also kind of stolen one of my questions for later because I was going to ask you, you know, what books or videos or articles or any, any would you recommend um, for people to go? So is, is there anything that you that you would suggest? For people to, you know, if they want to know more or if they want to, um, uh, yeah, I'd, yeah. I mean, I, I probably wouldn't recommend just, you know, diving straight into the scientific literature because you're just going to get uh, turned off immediately. So mm. there, there are two good books out recently, actually. Uh, okay. One of them uh, is by a guy called Mo Costandi, uh, who writes uh, a, a brain blog for the Guardian, uh, okay. and it's called. Uh, let me f- 50 human brain ideas you really need to know. Okay. Um, which is a really good, you know, introductory um, uh, text. And okay. another good. another nice book is by a guy called Christian Jarrett, and it's called Great Myths of the Brain. Okay. So he covers things like, you know, we only use 10% of our brain and... Yeah. Some people are left-brained and some people are right-brained. But kind of, so he debunks all that stuff. But along the way, he actually explains, well, okay, this is not correct, but this is this is what we now think. You know what I mean? So it's again, yeah. it's a really good kind of introductory uh, uh, way into that kind of thing. And what was that called again? Sorry. Great myths of the brain. Great myths. And are there any? Um, just while we're on that, are there any? So we, we've done kind of right brain, left brain, 10% mm-hmm. um, aspects. So are there any other sort of big myths that really frustrate you or, or <laughs> you know, kind of get you go, oh, not that good? Um, well, yeah, the left brain, right brain one is a, is a constant uh, nightmare. Um, what about male, female? Uh, yeah. Uh, there's not really that much difference, to be honest. Um, female brains tend to be a little bit smaller on average, uh, but then female bodies are a little bit smaller yeah, so on average. Oh, so skulls are a bit smaller, aren't yeah, they? Exactly. Uh, yeah. So yeah, that doesn't necessarily mean anything. Um, and people have looked very, very hard to find, you know, strong, consistent differences in 
the anatomy or uh, function. Um, and you know, the differences that have been found are relatively small, to be honest. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And any others? Any other myths? Um, <coughs> oh, let me think. The, 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 actually, the, the kind of dopamine, serotonin thing I see a lot. Okay. So, yeah, uh, you know, dopamine and serotonin are what makes you happy. Well, yeah, that's true, kind of. Um, but there are other things that make you happy. So, you know, we have a lot of other brain chemicals, um, things like opioids, um, mm -hmm. uh, like morphine that we actually have, you know, endogenously inside our brains as well. They, they make you pretty happy too. Uh, and dopamine's heavily involved in, in a lot of other things like, uh, you know, coordinating movements and things like that. So patients that have Parkinson's disease um, have a particular problem with uh, a dopamine-rich area in the brain and they end up having these very difficult movements and things like that. So, yeah, the whole dopamine-serotonin myth kind of winds me up a bit as well. Okay. I did not know that. I didn't know that, that dopamine had... had uh additional kind of functions and uses like i said before it's always more complicated than you can imagine <laughs> yeah i was um i was i can't remember how i found it i found a um and and i, I was yeah so i found a company in the states who who were offering um uh, i think it was serotonin level testing right um with a view to telling you how happy you were, right. uh, or you know, so you're, as in, if your serotonin levels were high, therefore you were happy, and mm -hmm. therefore you, you know, um, and they were doing it through urine testing as the way of doing it. Uh -huh. So they would actually post you out a kit, which you then you know put some urine in and send it back, and they test it for you. Right. Or, or they might actually, you know, they might give you, it might be in a dipstick actually. It might be they'll send you the dipstick to use um, for it. But no. I, did, I was like, why? No, that's why? terrible. Serotonin, I mean, serotonin is found all over the brain. There's actually loads of serotonin receptors. One of the highest concentrations of serotonin receptors is in the, the visual cortex at the back of the brain. Um, and we think that's why uh, when you take drugs like uh, LSD with hallucinogenics, mm -hmm. which tend to be serotonin-active molecules, we think that's why you get the hallucinations, the visual hallucinations. Okay. Um, there's also tons and tons of serotonin in the gut. Um, uh, so there's loads of serotonin neurons in the in the the stomach and the and the, the bowels. Um, uh, so yeah, serotonin is not uh, just a just a happy molecule either. It does a lot of different yeah. things. Yeah, I can imagine. Can imagine. <coughs> okay, so I'm, I'm partly conscious of time. Mm -hmm. um, um, because I don't, as much as I enjoying talking with you, I, I could keep you chatting all morning. Okay. But, um, um, is there, um, are there any other um, kind of, uh, is there anything else that you think is important for, for me slash the listeners to know around kind of uh, applying neuroscience into, say, the workplace, maybe that we haven't talked about already? Uh, I think it's, I think it's um, important not to kind of, push it too hard if you like um so you know a lot of people are, <clears throat> are very you know understandably very keen on on this idea of applying neuroscience in various settings in schools in, in the workplace and so on um i think if it's something that you're interested in just you know start reading about it start start getting into it uh but don't 
don't force it <laughs> if you like um, yeah. so uh, I think I think once you start forcing things into boxes that they're not supposed to fit in uh, that's when you start going wrong really you know mm. um, uh, if it's something you're in, that you're interested in great go you know go and read about it go to conferences think about it uh, you know watch watch TED talks or, or whatever um, and 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 you know really think about if if some of this stuff is useful uh, useful mm-hmm. to you or not um, but I see I see a lot of people uh, just kind of shoehorning in neuroscience like you said the guy at the conference you've got to have neuroscience yeah. in your title um, when it's may not be that useful for the problem that you have um, you know you may just be if you you have a you have a work problem it's 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 probably more useful to think about the, your problem person as a person rather than as a brain floating in a vat. You know, yeah. um, uh, you're not you're not going to get any particularly strong insights from knowing that uh, the dopamine receptors are firing off uh, or whatever uh, yeah. at that particular point. I think. Um, so, yeah, think think about it read about it think about it critically and 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 when you you know when you see people talking about these things think about okay well is this is this really useful or are they are they just putting a uh, a whizzy new spin on on something yeah wonderful thank you um and uh, one of the things that, that I ask, I, I would say I ask all my guests for that would be a lie because there's been some podcasts where I haven't done it, um, but I will ask you, okay. is there anyone that you would recommend that we seek out to get on the podcast? Anyone that you think, you know what, well, based on you know, the conversations that we've had and what you're trying to do, I think this would be an interesting person for you to, to, to find or talk to. Ooh, um, that's a tricky one. Well... Um, I mentioned a guy earlier called David Rock. Yes, uh, and you're a leadership guy. guy. Yeah, so I, I don't agree with a lot of what he does. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, so a lot of what he does uh, is is kind of falls into that thing that I just mentioned, where you try and shoehorn neuroscience into into something. But I think he's one of the guys that that he's genuinely interested in in the whole area and he's he's trying to trying to move it forward you know he's trying to trying to push it forward um which i think is 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 great uh so um, i'd maybe recommend seeing if you can get him on the line okay yeah all right wonderful thank you uh and then anything else then anything else that, that you're thinking anything else, feeling, anything else that you want to say to kind of bring us together to a close um Oh, I just want to reiterate, uh, I think, what I said earlier. Like, I find neuroscience fascinating. It's it's really gratifying to me that, that a lot of other people who are, who are you know, in di- very different fields find it interesting, kind of intrinsically interesting as well. Um, uh, and I really hope that we can find ways of, uh, of uh, applying these things in the future. Um, I think it's an important objective. And I, uh, me as a scientist, and I, I try and encourage my my uh, colleagues to 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 engage more with this stuff and uh, mm. and hopefully we can we can uh, find some good applications wonderful 
Um, thank you very much for, for your time today, Matt. I've really... My pleasure. Yeah, like really. I said, I, I, I could have carried, we could carry on all morning. Um, <laughs> but, no, but thank you very much for your time. Okay, um, my pleasure. I'll, uh, if you can send me the links to those, uh, your blog and the articles that, that are there, then that'd be great. I'll make sure all, all of the other um, things that we've discussed as we've gone along, so I'll make sure we put links into um, sort of like a... a what pet what pet goes PET is also EEGs and so on. I'll just put some links in so um, that if people want to go find out more information about that sort of stuff, then then they can. And um, if it's all right, I'll get you to just do a quick vet of those links before I put them in. I don't want to send sure, some yeah, people absolutely. to some to some hooky place if that's right. Sure, um, but yeah, uh, thoroughly enjoyed uh, thoroughly enjoyed our conversation today, and thank you for helping. Um, Pull apart, I suppose, in a way, um, a bit more about what, what neuroscience is. And, and my favourite sort of summary quote, I think, is going to be, "It's just not as simple as that." <laughs> yeah, because um, that's been a, a regular theme as we work our way through. I'm afraid. Um, so, yeah, so wonderful. Thanks very much. Um, thanks very much for your time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you too. All right. Take care. Bye. to the Emotion at Work podcast, written, recorded and presented by Phil Wilcox, edited together by Simon Leverton. You can find more information at emotionatwork.co.uk or follow us on Twitter at, at Phil Wilcox. Thanks for listening.